Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Dr. Richard White on the show. Dr. White is a historian of the United States specializing in the American West, the history of capitalism, environmental history, history and memory, and Native American history. He's also a MacArthur Fellow and a recipient of the Mellon Distinguished Professor Award. His work has won numerous academic prizes and has twice been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His new book, Who Murdered Jane Stanford, is a murder mystery, a vivid picture of the Gilded Age, and a palace intrigue story written by our most eminent historian of the Gilded Age. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Richard White. Let's start with a simple question, which is what was the impetus to write this book in particular? This is the first book I ever wrote that came out of a class. I was teaching a class where the whole point of the class was not to find out who killed Jane Stanford, but was to get students to use the archives. And um, I knew that there was a lot of archival material in the Stanfords because I'd worked through it when I uh, did Railroaded, a previous book. And um, I also knew from Stanley Cutler's work that Jane Stanford had died of strychnine poisoning. Um, and that, in fact, that strychnine poisoning had been covered up by the university. So I thought, if I can't convince students um, to go into the archives by telling them that the founder of their university was murdered, and that the clues to the murder might very well be in the archives, and that the university covered up the murder, and why that might have happened were in the archives, I probably could never get students in the archives. <laughs> So I got the students in the archives, and once they got in, I realized the limitations of what I was doing, which was classes last for 10 weeks, and then all the students disappeared. And I had terrific students. They taught the course twice, and, and they did a wonderful job, but they couldn't really follow things up in 10 weeks. So when the classes were over, um, and particularly when COVID came on, my curiosity just got the best of me. I, they had, I think, pretty much outline the major suspects, but they could not deliver a conclusive account, at least for me, as to who killed Jane Stanford and more than that, why they killed Jane Stanford um, and why the university was so interested in covering out. So that just worked at me. And I realized that when things are working on me, when I'm curious about something, I write a book. And so I wrote a book. So um, writing a book like this I imagine is different than some of your other work. Um, what what was it? Was there distinctive things in the process of putting this together? Um, and I know you have a sibling that writes crime fiction. Uh, did he have influence on your process of writing this book? Yeah, he influenced me a great deal. Um, and the book is a hybrid, and that's due to my brother Stephen. I mean, this is um, my first attempt to really take a genre outside of history seriously. And I would not go so far as to say it's a true crime book, though it's selling as a true crime book because there's an awful lot of history in it, more than most true crime people want to hear about. Um, but what Stephen pointed out to me is that both it would get me a wider audience. And secondly, no matter what I thought, this was about a crime and a cover-up and that people have been writing about crimes and cover-ups a lot, not just detective fiction, but true crime work and that I should pay some attention to it. So I, I dived into the genres. Um, I spent a lot of time um, 
reading Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, a lot of the noir detective fiction, which was a little later in this period, but pretty much overlapped it. And also reading um, true crime. Um, and so in doing that, I began to realize, and Stephen urged me to it, that I had to construct the book differently than I usually do. Um, you know, what, what historians do. We tell everything in the preface. Um, we spill the beans as soon as we've got it. Um, there's, if there's a mystery, we do our best to take care of it as soon as we encounter it. But if I'm writing this as a mystery, if in fact I'm holding out who killed Jane Stanford till the end, I can't deceive my reader. I have to lay out the evidence as I find it, but I'm in no obligation to jump ahead and tell everything I know. So this one, I really did um, create a different kind of narrative, one that holds the outcome till the very end. Mm. Um, what do you feel like was unsaid in Robert Cutler's book that you wanted to emphasize in your treatment of the subject? Obviously, he's a physician and it's a different discipline, but what, what do you feel like you were adding beyond genre-wise to the conversation? Essentially, I was adding everything except the strychnine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay, yeah. With, what Cutler was interested in is, did Jane Stanford die of strychnine, despite all the accounts from the university, she died a natural death. And he went out of his way to show that she had died of strychnine and to point out all the places where people had tried to cover that up. He did what I could not do. I am not a physician. I am not a scientist. But Cutler showed to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that she died of strychnine poisoning and that the strict, she was administered strychnine not once but twice in a period of a month. So what Cutler did was that, but Cutler at the same time pretty much accepted the university's account of Jane Stanford, um, that she was a, a wonderful woman. She was the founder of the university. Nobody had any reason to ever kill her. And secondly, he took the Stanford version of the founding of Stanford, that from the beginning, Stanford was always going to be an elite institution, that it was um, devoted to higher education, that there's nothing to see here except that he didn't like David Starr Jordan. Um, so he gave none of the context. He really gave no motive for why they would have wanted to kill Jane Stanford. Um, he certainly um, disliked Jordan for very good reason, and he was good on Jordan's cover-up, but not as good as he could have been. But basically, the murder went unexplained. There was no sense of early Stanford, no sense of early San Francisco, no sense of the dynamics which would lead people to want to kill James Stanford. So essentially, he did the work to set it within the kind of crime genre of the, the autopsy cause of death. And then you took it from there in terms of the detective role and trying to determine suspects. Yeah, I, I would have, people would have rightly been much more suspicious if I had gone into the strict knot because mm -hmm. I I don't know those things. But essentially, I could take that as a given. That's why I, I taught the class is once Cutler wrote that and convinced me, and I think convinced anybody who will look at that evidence that in fact she was poisoned, then the problem becomes, especially around the coroner's jury, not only was she poisoned, the coroner's jury said she was poisoned, the police investigated the poisoning, how come the whole thing was dropped? And that becomes my story. Um, were assassinations more common during the Gilded Age? Or is that just a stereotype of the era? You know, one of the things I found, I, I'd have to do a much more quantitative study to answer that question. 
But one of the things I found is that people who founded private universities um, were murdered. Um, the founder of Rice University was murdered by his butler. Jane Stanford was murdered. As I went through an awful lot of the things of um, newspaper accounts, there are other people who were not, I wouldn't say assassinated, but clearly death by poisoning, while unusual, was not uncommon. Um, so Jane Stanford could fit within a universe of people who um, were killed and certainly would fit within a universe of people who had left large estates for whom others wanted to gain access to them. And, you know, finally, the battles over estates could sometimes lead to yet other attempts at murder. So, yeah, this is the Gilded Age. I mean, things got pretty nasty. So you'd attribute that to the milieu of class resentment that was uh, extant in that particular era, kind of setting the stage for some of these patterns. Some of them, but some of them, remember, it, this is an age where presidents were assassinated. I mean, this is an age where these kinds of assassinations were not uncommon. We we tend to read back um, a kind of, except for the Wild West, the kind of peacefulness onto the 19th and early 20th century, which just is not justified. In many ways, um, crime rates were low, but these kinds of incidents of murder, poisoning, assassinations um, were common in the period. Mm. Um, let's talk a little bit about police corruption. Um, we have the, the subject of police corruption is common in our discourse today for a lot of reasons. Um, but I think the level of corruption, there's, there's a different kind of corruption within police departments that existed during the Gilded Age. Could you contrast what people uh, kind of associate with police corruption today with what was existing back then? Yeah, um, right now, police corruption is often associated with race. Um, that the kinds of things we think about are police using inexcusable violence and then covering it up. When we talk about corruption, that's often what we're talking about. Or police, particularly in things like traffic tickets and other things, singling out one class of the community, usually um, black drivers or um, Latino drivers, depending on where you are, and using those fines, particularly in small towns, to finance cities. We think about that as corrupt. I'm talking about a corruption that's related to that, but is different. I'm talking about a corruption that's just intrinsic to the system. It's a system in which to operate certain kinds of businesses, payments had to be made, that um, police were bought off by gamblers, um, by prostitutes and brothel owners, by people who are selling liquor or drugs, by people who are smuggling goods, by criminals themselves. And those money, that money doesn't just go to the cop, the corrupt cop, it's funneled upwards into political machines. So the cops take a share, it goes on up to higher police officials, and then it goes up to political operatives. So that the whole system is um, corrupt from quite literally bottom to top. Mm. Um, and how would people have viewed that corruption in that time period? There's a temptation to want to judge different time periods by our standards. Uh, would that corruption have just been viewed as the way business operates or would people in, living in that era see it as corruption like we might? 
they saw it as corruption, but they also um, saw it as the price of doing business. Um, and it mattered how much it touched you. You know, if, if in fact it allows you to do business and if what your business is, is in many ways illegal, you know, you have to pay off. You have to do it. There's not an objection to it. And if, in fact, the kind of um, corruption stays where the crimes do not really harm the general public, the general public can be tolerant of it. On the other hand, once the whole thing is seen as corrupt, once it goes over into something like a murder, and that's why the Jane Stanford murder is such a revelation, that somebody who is a member of the elite can have their murder disappear because of the generic corruption in the city, that strikes a nerve. That surprises people. It certainly surprised me. Mm. So it's the exceptionalness of the victim that uh, brought people's attention more to the situation. Can we talk about the circumstances of the founding of Stanford University um, in terms of its connection to Leland Jr.'s death and why it was uh, part of uh, why it was why he asked for that and why uh, the Stanford's followed through with that? Yeah, that that's a complicated story. One that's um, integrated into what is still the founding myth of Stanford University. And the founding myth of Stanford University is the two grieving parents um, who lose their only child, who is a bright and promising child, who dies in Italy at typhoid um, at the age, I think, of 14. He's about to become 15. Um, then decide to, having lost their child, dedicate their fortune to the children of California. They do so supposedly because after Leland Jr.'s death, immediately afterward, Leland Stanford's falling asleep beside his dying son's bedside, has his son appear to him in a dream and tell him to give the opportunities he had to the children of California. When he awakes, his son is dead. And he goes forward to make that um, into Stanford University. That is the myth of how Stanford was founded. And I'm using myth here because it's a founding story, not in the sense that everything about it is false. He was promising. Um, Leland Stanford, as far as I can see, has this dream, but it then later on goes into a further development that um, Jane Stanford more than Leland, but both of them initially are spiritualists who try to get contact with their dead son. And after Leland's death, um, Jane continues to communicate as a spiritualist with her dead husband. So as I say in the book, in a certain way, ghosts run the university. So that's that's how the university is founded. But there's another aspect to it. Um, Leland Stanford himself was corrupt. Um, Leland Stanford had taken subsidies from the um, United States government to build a railroad and then uh, refused to pay back the money he owed. There had been long legal battles over this. He, in fact, had engaged in all kinds of um, illegal activities in financing the railroad and in cheating stockholders when he sold stock in the railroad. He had bought a seat in the United States Senate. He is deeply embroiled in the corruption of the Gilditch. Um, what Stanford is, is in that sense, a giant exercise of money laundering. Um, which is recognized at the time. Charles Elliott, the president of Stanford University, says, says so. That what Leland Stanford is doing is taking an ill-gotten fortune and cleansing it, which in a way we know very much today in the way that oligarchs and others take money and try to, to clean their social reputation by founding institutions, donating money. Leland Stanford was a pioneer, in that, along with Andrew Carnegie and others, that what he does is um, launders the money, creates Stanford University. But 
He's still Leland Stanford. This is the complicated part. He actually doesn't deliver much money to Stanford University. He promises money to Stanford University. He gives enough to get it going. But in fact, Stanford University, until Jane Stanford is dead, is always in danger of not getting the money that was promised by Leland Stanford Sr. Jane controls that money. And Jane numerous times indicates that she is going to withdraw that money devoted to other instances unless she gets her way in running Stanford University. So until she is dead, Stanford University in many periods is hanging by a string, both because the government comes back to try to get the money that Leland Stanford owes it and fails to do so, which secures the fortune. But then Jane Stanford, once she secures the fortune, um, is unwilling to firmly commit all of it to Stanford. And there's a final element that comes into this. The documents that draw up Stanford University violate Stanford law, or excuse me, violate California. So that Stanford University is from its very founding illegal. It takes a constitutional amendment to clean up Stanford University. So in fact, it can become a legitimate private institution with the privileges granted by the state of California. So from the very beginning, Stanford University is a holy mess. And that creates part of the context about Jane Stanford's murder. And how has the administration at Stanford articulated this founding myth um, in their communications and uh, their own uh, internal story of the university? Um, the best way to see it, and I haven't looked at it lately, I know they're, they're not going to pay any attention to this book, it's not going to change it, is take the tour that Stanford gives um, to its incoming students and their parents, when people who want to go to Stanford. And what it is, as I mentioned at the beginning of my book, it's usually an undergraduate walking backwards, talking to the people as he, as he or she goes. And what they give is the the founding myth of the um, generous philanthropist bestowing money on Stanford University. Stanford is unwilling to give up that story because like most private universities, no matter what else it does, one of the major things Stanford is about is soliciting money. If my book is dangerous to Stanford, it's not because of the um, murder of Jane Stanford. It's not because of the cover-up. It's because I argue in the book that the main trouble with philanthropy is philanthropists, that they put all kinds of pressures on institutions which will steer them in ways the institution might not want to go. That essentially most private universities to one degree or another, maybe not their whole soul, but they've sold part of their soul to the people who are giving them money. And that's been true of Stanford from day one. And I think the danger to the university in books like mine is people asking the question, well, what's in the endowment now? What conditions are in the endowment? What's your relationship with the people who make the endowments? And Stanford will never, ever allow that to be talked about. Mm. Have you seen universities that have handled their troubled past uh, in a way that's more geared towards transparency? I know that there's some universities that are changing names of buildings, um, but those are for different reasons. Um, have you seen uh, uh, attempts that have seemed to address some of these issues at other institutions? Yeah, I mean, Stanford will do the same thing. And what you've outlined is how universities handle this. You change the name. You don't change the way university operates. You don't change anything essential about it. Stanford dropped David Starr Jordan's name from Jordan Hall. Easily done. Jordan is gone. 
dropping Jane Stanford's name would be a lot more difficult, and I don't think they're going to do it, nor am I advocating that they should do it, because I, I'm more interested in really bigger fish. It's not changing the name. It's changing your practices. If, for example, the institution still has um, a legacy of racism and favoritism to people who, um, by and large, are going to be drawn from one section of the community, let's say um, students who get in because they're um, children of alumni, that's more difficult to change. Um, if, in fact, the university is tied up with obligations that come from the people who've given it money, that's more difficult to change. Universities I've seen have done none of those things. It's much easier to make a big deal about changing a name, apologize profusely about something that happened 100 years ago, 150 years ago, have all kinds of pieties about how we will never, ever do that again. That legacy is now behind us. We're really a progressive institution. And meanwhile, change nothing essential about how the university operates. I'm, I'm pretty cynical about this stuff. Understand, understandably so. Um, let's talk about Jane herself. Um, I don't know if I've read a book uh, with a character with so many enemies before. Um, would you say that she was exceptionally bad relative to some of the other robber barons? No, no, she wasn't. I mean, what she was was she was rich. And as Bertha Burner, um, her secretary says, she knew she was rich, she knew the power of her wealth, and she exercised it over everybody around it. I mean, one of the things that once I began to um, consider it surprised me, everybody close to Jane worked for her. Um, her family worked for her. Bertha Burner worked for her. She considered the entire faculty of Stanford University as her employees. Her servants worked for her. Everybody who, in fact, she donated funds to were dependent on her money, and she considered them, in fact, ersatz employees. So Jane Stanford was somebody who was very wealthy, let you know it, and if you did anything that crossed Jane Stanford, she, there would be retribution. And beyond that, she's very much going to be a Victorian woman um, of the 1890s, early 20th century, with all of the class prejudices that she has. She, um, does, she is outraged by the behavior of um, female Stanford undergraduates. She thinks they are um, sexually dissolute. She thinks they are... Um, tempting boys. She thinks that after a while that they don't belong in the university, that mostly what she wants to do is bring them under a kind of Victorian control. And she's draconian in what she wants to do. It's one of the major things that um, alarms the university and makes them think they're going to withdraw the funds. Mm -hmm. She's also somebody who's a devout spiritualist, and she wants spiritualism taught at the university, which in the early 20th century will outrage a lot of faculty who um, see this as, as absolute nonsense, that they don't believe um, they should be taught there, though there are people like Henry James who take spiritualism seriously and should be investigated. Um, so that what she will do in around servants, when you actually work for her, um, she's just imperious. Um, she thinks that you can control not only her your life when you're working for her, but your time off who you can see, what you can do. So anybody who comes in touch with her feels her power and she doesn't hesitate to exercise it, um, including Bertha Burner, her secretary, whose mother is dying, but that never really makes Jane Stanford doubt that Bertha Burner's first loyalty should be to Jane Stanford. 
She is, I mean, I, in the end, I could understand. I think money made her worse, but she's a nasty, um, imperious, um, cruel woman. Mm. And that's why she uh, accrued so many enemies. Uh, can you list some of the uh, maybe suspects um, that you initially encountered? And I know there's quite a few, maybe some of the prime suspects um, as you start to think about uh, compiling your list. Sure. Um, you know, the first ones are the ones that police identified. And in the Victorian era, this would always be the first suspect. It's her servant. They think that Elizabeth Richmond, who's her personal maid at the time, um, and had access to her, she becomes a suspect for administering the first dose of poison, which was rat poison, put into her Poland spring bottle of water. Ah uh, Wing, who's a Chinese servant, particularly because he's Chinese, immediately becomes a suspect. And has found out that Jane Stanford had, um, Jane Stanford's brother had promised Ah uh, Wing uh, uh, inheritance in his will. And Jane Stanford instead got that inheritance. And Ah uh, Wing felt betrayed and wanted to go back to China. And Ah uh, Wing nursed the bitterness towards the Stanford family because of what happened there. Albert Beverly, who's the butler, who was friends with Elizabeth Richmond, um, who comes to resent Jane Stanford a great deal, and who in fact was taking money, getting kickbacks from merchants and embezzling money from Jane Stanford. Once they find he's embezzling, once they find he's attached to Richmond, he becomes a major suspect. So among the servants, those are gonna be the major suspects. Bertha Berner becomes a suspect because she's the only pres, she's a secretary to Jane Stanford, had worked for her off and on for over 20 years. But in the usual accounts, it's always she had been there all the time. She was not. There had been frequent breaks um, in which she quarreled with Jane Stanford and quit and then been persuaded to come back. She's her secretary. She's the only person who is present at both poisons, the one in Hawaii and the one in San Francisco. It's hard to be present both times when somebody administers strychnine to Jane Stanford and not be uh, um, a suspect. And the final one who becomes a suspect, a major suspect is going to be David Starr Jordan, president of the university. Because just before Jane Stanford embarks for Hawaii, David Starr Jordan had found that Jane Stanford was going to fire her, something he feared for a long time, but it had become clear, it was common knowledge, at least among trustees and higher ups in the university, that Jordan was through. If Jane Stanford had come back, Jordan would have been fired, but Jane Stanford never comes back. Mm. And how, how would you rate uh, the cover-up administered by Jordan? Uh, was it thorough enough, or uh, would you say that uh, he had additional help? Uh, he had additional help because it, it came from um, Mountford Wilson, one of um, Stanford's lawyers and people on the board of trustees who knew that her death was suspicious, but also realized that if her death became a murder or even worse, a suicide, it was going to hurt the university. So there were people who knew better who were willing to let this happen. This cover up in hindsight was incredibly sloppy. Um, it is no trouble taking apart the cover up. Um, Cutler did part of it. I do the rest of it. Um, anybody who looks at this stuff, it's just, it, you don't have to be a, a master detective to realize what's going on here. The police in Hawaii were outraged. Of course, this was a murder. It was being covered up by Jordan. Newspaper editors in San Francisco were sure this was a cover-up being administered by the university. But in fact, um, nobody really goes after it. That's the critical thing. 
Maybe if there hadn't been a San Francisco earthquake, it would have per percolated back to the top. But once the earthquake begins to destroy records, turns people in other directions, it never comes up. So on one hand, you can say it worked because it, it did work for well over 100 years. And on another hand, once you start looking at it, it just crumbles to pieces. Mm. And so that I was going to bring up the earthquake, and that was kind of what turned this into perhaps a case that could have been solved to a kind of a permanent cold case in some sense. Yeah, because there were records. You know, one thing I could not get was I wanted the private detective records. Private detectives were integral to Jordan's cover-up. They hired private detectives after the first um, poisoning, and the private detectives were not hired to solve the crime. They were hired to cover up the crime, and that's true of both. And so, but the private detective agency records have by and large almost totally disappeared. The police records I still think might be out there someplace, but I couldn't find them. And the reason I think they're out there is I found a newspaper story about them taking records from um, the police department after the earthquake and to preserve them from fire, dumping beer on. The detail is just too great to think that they, there's not something in that story. But if, in fact, they were, I've never found them. I tried. I didn't get a great deal of cooperation from um, San Francisco or from the police department, but that doesn't surprise me. But maybe somebody sometime will run across some of the police records. Most of them are gone, but maybe they might be there. Um, so the key records about the investigation are going to be gone. I had hopes for looking into the Hawaii stuff, but um, not only have the Hawaiian records by and large disappeared, but they continue to disappear, which, which astonishes me that the coroner's jury records, which once were in Hawaii, there's a copy of them in the Stanford archives. When I went back to try to find them in Hawaii, they're gone again. Um, probably not destroyed, but lost somehow. So that I've never done an investigation of any historical issue where so many records just disappear. Mm. Um, I'm going to ask you to do something that often historians don't like to do, which is think about alternate histories. Um, do you think this case would have been solved if uh, Leland had survived Jane and was still alive at this point? You know... If Leland had survived Jane, um, Jane would not have been murdered because Leland is um, very much involved in San Francisco politics until he dies. Um, he is part of the corruption of San Francisco. Um, Jane is not. She's backed out of those politics. If somebody had murdered Leland's wife, the police would have turned on it right away. Um, and furthermore, you know, as I go through the book um, and I investigate this, I think the police knew who did it all along. Um, and all you had to do to solve the crime was to um, identify the people and how it happened that the police already knew. So I, I think if Leland had survived, yeah, and Jane had been murdered, they would have they would have taken care of it. Okay. One other alternate history question, which is, um, if Jane had not been poisoned. Uh, how might you think that have affected the trajectory of Stanford University? You know, if Jane had not been poisoned, it's hard to say because Jane changes her mind a lot. But I think what would have happened is that Jane would have prevented, presented the university with an ultimatum. Um, Jordan would have been gone for certain. Um, 
co-eds would have been banished from the university um, and she would have had the trustees do it. She was head of the board of trustees. Um, the teaching of spiritualism and Jane's other beliefs would have become an intrinsic part of the curriculum. If she could not push that through, she would have pulled out such money as she could have given it to um, the Catholic Church and tried to make Stanford University a branch of what is now, was then Santa Clara University run by Jesuits, which at the end is what she really wanted to do. The Jesuits would take care of her problems for her. So if she had lived, Stanford University as we now know it would not have existed. I mean, Jordan is perfectly right in covering up her murder, not wanting this stuff to come out because he knew what was at stake in all of this was the future of Stanford University. Has this book changed how you view uh, the institution where you worked? No, you know, I, I, I've never um, been, a, I've taught at Stanford University for over 20 years, but to tell you the truth, my heart was always in public universities because for all their faults, they're far more transparent um, in what they do. Um, their funding depends much more on um, public funds, though not so much anymore as private funds. I've always been pretty cynical about private universities and then that didn't change. I became more cynical when I went to work for them. And I've always told my graduate students, um, whether they work for public universities or private universities, that not to think that universities are your friends, not to think that you're really part of a community of scholars, as much as you might want that to be true, you're an employee um, and they're gonna treat you like an employee. And when the time comes, it's gonna be their interests, not your interests or your colleagues' interests that are gonna be central to them. So, this reinforced, it goes back to the very beginnings of these institutions, but it didn't change it. Mm. Uh, let's close with book recommendations. Um, I would love if you could offer some book recommendations for uh, California during the Gilded Age. Uh, it's a subject that we're starting to discuss more on this show. Um, and I know listeners always like book recommendations that are regional specific, uh, that cover stuff that's local to them. Okay. I mean, one of the things I do is take a look at Johnny Farragut's new book on the short history of California, which mm -hmm. does a, a wonderful job of taking in not only all of California history, but also um, <clears throat> the Gilded Age, California. Um, and at the same time, I, I'd also go back to his his previous book, um, his book, which I'm, you know, as, as usual at this kind of thing, I'm about to blank on the title, but it's about Los Angeles in, um, and the growth of Los Angeles, which carries over into Gilded Age, Gilded Age California. And it's about the violent origins of California, which continue on um, into the late 19th, early 20th century. I'd also take a book, which is not really a history and is more peculiar to Stanford, and it's more of a, a memoir too, is Lulu Miller's Why Fish Don't Exist, which um, she's an NPR journalist and it's a wonderful book. She helped me a lot of my own stuff. And I would say that she should take a look at, at take a look at that. Um, you know, I, I think when you want to look at um, things like Chinatown during this period, I'd take a look at, Tammy Bennett Shelton's new work on Chinese and the way they integrate into um, California history, that um, that's a, a wonderful book. I would say that, you know, an older book is Boss Roof San Francisco, which looks very closely at um, 
California history during this during this period. Um, you know, there's also going to be a new biography of um, Henry George coming out. That um, Henry George is, I think, somebody who's been slighted, and this treats him very much as not just a New York intellectual, but a California intellectual. If you really want to understand the ways in which um, racism, populism, progressivism are all tangled together in California, that becomes another another way to go at it. Those are wonderful recommendations. Um, last question, what's next for you? Uh, do you have a project on the horizon? And is it also gonna be about uh, a murder mystery? Well, you know, this this becomes a, a, a difficult question because usually what I've done before I ever publish a book, it's a trick I learned a long time ago, is um, forget about the book that's just been published and put your sights on the book that you write. But as this book came close to publication, my wife died. Um, Sorry. So, so I dropped everything. So this one's quite different. I mean, it's also, I've written a short article about this. When you get to be my age now, you can't do long projects um, because it's essentially you don't have 10 years to spend in the archives. So what I'm doing now is doing two things, which I probably will never publish. Um, one of them is in sorting out my papers to give to Stanford. Um, I ran across a manuscript, which I knew existed, um, which I wrote in 1969 and 70 about fishing rights demonstrations on the Nisqually River, the fishings, which eventually led to the Bolt decision and native fishing rights, where um, I was there and it was part of a summer trip that started out going to Chicago Democratic Convention, then it went south. And it sort of captures a moment in my life and also the late 1960s, which I would never ever publish as it is because it's just awful. It's it's terrible. <laughs> but it might also be a way in which I can do what I did in remembering a hanagram, but do to myself, which is look at a manuscript and examine it as a historian, but I'm both the author of the manuscript, the later historian who is looking at the manuscript and a character in the manuscript. So, um, I'm toying with that, but I'm afraid the results are going to be more therapy about the um, getting through the death of my wife than an actual book. So it might never be published. And the other thing is because I'm down at the Huntington Library and because I've been doing, um, I still do Indian treaty cases. I've been looking at um, people who got sucked into the Burr conspiracy. So I'm thinking of you doing a short book, which is just gonna be called Traitors. Um, there are people by any definition of the word who are traitors who join Burr, who have some inclination of what he's up to, and then begin to realize what they've done and try to mask it, go back in forgiveness, do all kinds of other things. So I'm gonna look at this quite particular instance of treason in the early Republic um, and simply call the book Traitors, and obviously it's going to have a certain resonance around January 6th. People who were, in one way or another, thinking to overthrow, at least in part, the United States government. Um, and we tend to forget about that kind of stuff happening in the late 19th century, early 19th century. Um, so I might also finish that, and I might not. So I'm always doing something, but I'm at a stage 
where if either of those books ever get published, I'd probably be the most surprised person. <laughs> well, I appreciate you having this conversation. I encourage everyone listening to go pick up your book, preferably at your local bookstore. But if you have to go through Amazon, uh, just pick it up anyway. Um, and thank you for having this conversation with me. Sure. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating or review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. We'll see you next time.